0: So now I would encourage you to, to grab your Bible if you have one with you. And if you don't have a Bible with you, that's okay. The, the passage that we're going to be looking at today is also printed in your order of worship on page 9. And you'll remember that we're, we're in the book of Ephesians. This is a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to Christians in the region of Ephesus. We said that this was on the, the coast of what is modern-day Turkey. And right at the very beginning of this text, before we, we dive into it in full, you'll notice that it's talking about blessings. And, and I'm curious, just, just thinking about your life, about my life, how blessed are you today? That when we, we think about material blessings in this life, there can be a difference, maybe different levels of visible blessing in the material world. Some have more good health, some have more financial stability, some have better vocational success, that when we look at things from the worldly perspective, it seems as if some are more blessed than others. It's not that everything is perfectly fair and perfectly equal. But then you consider spiritual blessings. And look in your Bible at verse 3, the first verse of our text. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So to, to bless God is not to add something to God as if he's lacking anything, but to, to bless God, when you say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that that is a way of saying, praise the Lord, give thanks to God. And the reason that we are to praise God, to bless God, to give thanks for to God, is because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And when he says us, you'll remember from verse 1 that he's talking to believers, to the to the saints, to the faithful who are in Ephesus. He's saying, believer, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, that you lack nothing. You have every single blessing you could possibly imagine. And yes, you may not have every material blessing in worldly places, but he's saying that you have every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, that you have the the blessing of justification when you put your faith in Christ, when you trust in him for salvation, you are declared righteous in the sight of God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that you have the blessing of adoption, that you are adopted into the family of God through union with Christ. That you have the blessing of sanctification, that you you are being conformed more and more to the image of Christ throughout your life. And then ultimately, in Christ, you have the hope and the promise of glorification, the great blessing of being with God forever, being confirmed in righteousness, saved to sin no more. That we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And you can think about this as a kind of spiritual trust fund. You could imagine that you were adopted into the family of a rich billionaire, and the rich billionaire sets up a trust fund in your name. It has millions and millions of dollars, uh, more money than you could ever spend in one lifetime, but you're not able to access it in full until you're 25 and you're only a year away from being able to access this spiritual, this financial trust fund. And then if you think about that, you you could go to that person and say, are you rich or are you poor? And then one sense the person might say, well, I'm poor because I have a $1,000 in my bank account. But then on the other side, he could say I'm very rich because I have multi-million dollar trust fund in my name and it's not that long until I take full possession of it. And that's how you can think about the Christian life according to the Apostle Paul. He's, he's saying that, that we have been adopted into the family of God, that we have a, a spiritual trust fund in the heavenly places that has been funded by the perfect life and sacrificial death of Christ. It has infinite spiritual value And that yes, in a certain way, in this life, we might feel poor, we might go through struggles, but yet at some point in the future, we will take full possession of our inheritance to the glory of God. That's the picture that we see here in verse 13. So you can think of this as the the long introduction because as you look at your Bible, look at verse three, Then you follow with your eye verse three all the way to verse 14. Verse three all the way to verse 14 in your Bible is one sentence in the original language. In the original Greek it is one sentence, one grammatical sentence from verse three to verse 14. And what we've just been talking about, the spiritual blessings is the introduction, it's launching into the whole discussion throughout this sentence. And for trivia, it's the, the second longest sentence in the Bible that the longest is in the book of Colossians, also from the, the apostle Paul. But look at the, the beautiful structure of this sentence in verse three to verse 14. So verse three, Paul is saying, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that we should glorify him to bless God. But then the rest of this sentence in the original language, helpfully broken up into five sentences in our translation, for the rest of this sentence, Paul is explaining how we came to possess every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How did this become ours? so if you look at your Bible, verse four to six, we have every spiritual blessing because the Father chose us. And then verse 7 to 12, that we have every spiritual blessing because the Son redeemed us. And then verse 13 and 14, we have every spiritual blessing because the Spirit sealed us. And so you'll notice that this long sentence has a Trinitarian structure, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Praise God from whom all blessings flow, and it's ultimately Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But then also, as you look at your Bible, notice how each of these sections, these three sections, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, end with the praise and the glory of God. So look at verse 6 in your Bible. This is the end of the first section. He says that it's all to the praise of his glorious grace. Then look at verse 12, the end of the second section. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then the very end of the sentence in verse 14, he says, to the praise of his glory. That this, this praise of God, starting from verse 1, to bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is filled with praise and glory to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the way we're going to walk through this is actually in in three sermons. There's so much in each of these these sections that today we're going to focus on verse 4 to 6, how the Father chose us, that we have every spiritual blessing because the Father chose us. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll look at verse 7 to 12, how the Son redeemed us. Then the week after that, if the Lord preserves us, then we'll look at verse 13 and 14, how the Spirit sealed us. So that is a a long introduction to a long sentence that we're going to be exploring for the next three weeks. And so again, look in your Bible. So if you haven't opened your Bible yet and you have one with you, uh, turn to Ephesians 1. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the entire sentence, all 14 verses, and then we're gonna go back and focus on verse four to six, how the Father chose us. So verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word today, we are led to the, to the mountaintops, to the top of a spiritual Mount Everest, praising the glory of God, being drawn all the way back to eternity past in your plans And Lord, we pray that our response to all of this would be worship, that it would be adoration, that it would drive us to the the fear of the Lord, that it would drive us to a growing sense of who we are in Christ. And Lord, I I pray that you would guide my my teaching, my preaching of this text, uh, that I would be able to stay true to your word, to speak what is true to Scripture, that you would guide me. And so, Father, we pray in Jesus' name amen and so as we said this this section verse four to six is focusing on the the work of the father the, the work of the father in his choice and his predestination. Now sometimes people think that the language of election or the language of of predestination is something that that only Presbyterians talk about or something that was invented by Augustine of Hippo in the fifth century or invented by John Calvin in the 16th century. But what we see here in, in this text is that the concept of election, the concept of predestination And the language of it is actually clearly in the scriptures. But of course, this can be difficult for our minds. We have a hard time wrapping our minds around this concept. It brings so many questions about God, about salvation, about human freedom, human responsibility. That's why this has always been a controversial discussion throughout the history of the church. But right off the bat, I do want to point out that for Paul, this is not an embarrassing doctrine. This is not a doctrine that he's trying to stuff into the back of the closet, that, that maybe, even if it's true, if once people are really fully integrated into the church, then we'll, we'll kind of wheel this embarrassing doctrine out of the closet and talk about it. But for Paul, if you if you think of the book of Ephesians as a beautiful mansion, and that's a good way to think about the book of Ephesians, this beautiful mansion of God's glory, that you enter into the mansion that is the book of Ephesians, and right in the parlor, the, the first room, the nicest room in the house in a sense, uh, you, you see set up election, predestination, that all to the glory of God, that, that this is something that that in some ways he's, he's, he's assuming, he's presupposing, and it's not for an intellectual discussion, first and foremost, but it's for worship. It's to, to draw us to the praise and to the honor of God, of blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But for our discussion today, uh, we're going to orient our discussion around these two verses, so verse 4 and 5. And so the first heading is that God chose us, that's verse 4. And then the second heading is that God predestined us, that's verse 5. And my goal in this is to stay as close to the language of this text as possible. So look first, the first heading, God chose us. Verse 4. Look at verse 4 in your Bible. He says, He chose us. A very simple language, three words in English. He chose us. But in this long sentence, Paul modifies this verb, cho- chose, with three phrases. And so if you're if your teacher ever made you do a, a sentence diagram when you were in school, that you would have, he chose us, and then you would have three phrases right underneath that verb. And we're going to walk through the, those three phrases as our three subheadings. So he chose us first, he chose us in him. Look at verse four. He chose us in him. And the, the him that is being talked about is the hymn from verse 3 when it says that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, that every spiritual blessing of the Christian life is in Christ. And here, as he goes all the way back to the very beginning of time, before time itself, he's saying that God chose us in him, in Christ that it wasn't an arbitrary choice, it wasn't an impersonal choice, that it was fundamentally personal because it is in Christ. The ESV study Bible says that God's initiative in redeeming the believer from sin and death was not arbitrary or whimsical, uh, but something God had planned all along in Christ. That Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is at the very center of everything, the center of every spiritual blessing, the center of God's sovereign choice in Christ. That, think of the hymn that we sing, in Christ alone my hope is found. He is my life, my strength, my soul. That everything is in Christ. So that's the, the first heading, this first subordinate phrase. He chose us in Christ. But now let's move to the second phrase, that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Look at those words in verse 4. Before the foundation of the world. It's saying that God didn't wait around passively for us to get our act together, hoping that somehow humanity would become good enough. But it says that he chose us and that our salvation is rooted all the way back to the very beginning, to the eternal purposes in God who created the world. And to think about this, I I kept thinking of visiting a friend. Um, Imagine you visit one friend and he forgot that you're coming. He forgot to ask off of work. He doesn't have any food in the refrigerator. There isn't a bed made, so you have to to sleep on the couch. There's no attention. There was no forethought for your, your visit to the home. But then you visit another friend, and he asked off of his job way in advance. He has the refrigerator stocked with all of your favorite foods. He has a a bed prepared, he's set up an itinerary of all of your favorite activities in the town. And you say, wow, this was planned in advance. There's, there's forethought, there's foresight here. And that's how we can think about God and salvation, that it is planned in advance, that all along he was planning it for his glory and for our good, that he chose us before the foundation of the world. So that's the second subheading, second modifying phrase. But then third, look in your Bible. It says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. If the last phrase was the timing of God's choice, this is the, the purpose of God's choice. Why did he do it? And even in chapter 2 of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says that we are his workmanship, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That God prepared our good works beforehand, that they're not ultimately our good works. They're something that God is working in us. And he's saying here in the text that that's why he chose us, that he chose us not so that we could live any way that we want, not so that we could live for self, so that we could live for pleasure, but that he chose us so that we could be holy and blameless before him. And if you think about it, this is your calling as a Christian, that if you are a believer, if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ for salvation, then you are counted as blameless and holy in the sight of God through faith in Christ. But as we discussed last week at length, that this is also part of our calling as as we grow more and more in righteousness as a response to God's grace within us, that we grow in holiness, we grow to be holy and blameless before him. And you think, well, what is my purpose in life? Sometimes people struggle with, with purpose. Why am I here? But then listen to what the Apostle Paul says in First Thessalonians chapter four, verse three. He says, This is the will of God for you. You say, Oh wow, that, that would be good to know. What is the will of God for my life? And he says, This is the will of God for you, your sanctification to grow in holiness that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his body in holiness and honor. The purpose of our life is to be holy and blameless before him. So now, as we we move from the the third heading, we've talked about it's in him, it's before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And we move from verse 4 to verse 5. So we said the first big heading is He chose us. And we looked at those three ways that He chose us. But now the, the second heading is this He predestined us. Look in your Bible at verse 5, and you see those words He predestined us. I'm not original in my headings. <laughs> Uh, and simple, three words in English, he predestined us. And here, I don't believe that he's introducing a new concept. It's not that he chose us, and now let's talk about something different that he predestined us. But he's using a different word for the same concept. And in some ways, it's a strong, stronger word. It's a more forceful word. In the original language, it means to decide upon beforehand, that he decided upon this beforehand. He predetermined it. He predestined it. Remember I said in verse 4 that if you went to your English teacher and you had the the sentence diagram, he chose us, three modifying phrases. Same thing here in verse 5. He predestined us, and then we have three modifying phrases. And so again, these are our three subheadings, we'll walk through this. And so first, he predestined us in love. Now you'll say, I don't see that phrase in verse five. And you'll notice that, that it's in, in most of the modern English translations, it says in love, verse five, he predestined us. Because the verses in the Bible were added in later, they weren't original to the text. Whoever originally put the verses in thought that in love belong with verse 4, that the purpose of our salvation, the the purpose of God's choice is that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, that it's our love for God. And you say, well, that's true. We are to love God. But I think that most of the modern translations are right to see this phrase in him as as belonging with verse 5. It's not our love for God, but it is God's love for us, that he predestined us in love. And so you remember I said that that it wasn't an arbitrary choice because he chose us in Christ. But we can also say that it's not an arbitrary choice because he chose us in love before the foundation of the world that we see this eternal love in the very being of God, this, this unchanging, immutable love of God for his people. This love that is not rooted in how lovely we are in and of ourselves. It's, it's not that God looked at sinful humanity and thought, now there is something to love. But he set his love on his people and then acted in love to to redeem us, to save us, to to draw us to himself, to to grow us in righteousness, his workmanship created in him for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so the question is, do we see the love of God for us? And this is the love that Paul saw from God that, that he was never able to escape in his life. You could think of Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So do you know the love of God for you? And if you are in Christ, you can know what Paul says in Romans 8, that that nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ because it is a love that is rooted all the way in eternity past in God and his choice of predestination. He loved us. So that's the the first subheading in verse 5. He predestined us in love. But then look. Again, at your Bible, verse 5, he predestined us, second, for adoption to himself as sons. So, on the one hand, we said, What's the purpose of God's choice? That we should be holy and blameless before him. And then here, Paul is introducing a, a second purpose. He's saying, God predestined you so that you can be adopted into God's family. The purpose is adoption. And I've had friends and family members who have adopted internationally, and I think it's such a beautiful picture of God's love for us, that there, there's a, a couple that says we want to adopt, and they begin to, to save, because it's very expensive to adopt, And then eventually they get word from the adoption agency there is a child in an orphanage somewhere overseas. This child is available for adoption. And the the parents set their love on that child. Before they met the child, before the child met them, they set their love on that child. And they take care of all of the paperwork, all of the the legal work. They buy the tickets, they fly overseas, and they enter into the orphanage. And and when they meet the child for the first time, they can say, honestly, I've been thinking about you for a long time. And I'm, I'm taking you home with me because I love you. And we're not bringing you home to be a servant. We're not bringing you home to be... Slave, But we're bringing you home to be a child, to have the full honors and privileges of of a child in our household. And what we want you to do is to grow to know our love for you that preceded even meeting you. And and for the child, it might be strange at first. It might take time for them to to come to grips with this love and this plan and this, this purpose that was at work before they knew anything. What's happening but that is the picture of God's love and his purposes for us in election in predestination that God set his love on us that he set his purposes on us from start to finish to to redeem us to carry us to himself to to accomplish everything from beginning to end from the start of the redemption process to the end of the redemption process fully of the Lord, so that salvation is of the Lord. And I think that for believers, for you, for me, for those who are in Christ, that that we can take comfort from this, that, that we don't have to, to live like orphans. We don't have to wonder if God really loves us or if he's really going to, to take care of us. Because as it says in scripture, that if a, If an evil father will give good gifts to his children, how much will a loving heavenly father give us all things in Christ? So you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to worry about tomorrow. You don't have to to worry if you'll make it through this life because God has you and he's bringing you all the way from this life to the new heavens and the new earth in glory, all planned out in his loving faithfulness. So that's the the second heading here in verse 5, that he predestined us for adoption. But then here's the the third and final heading. Look in your Bible at verse 5, God predestined us according to the purpose of his will. And that phrase is, is crucial for, for our understanding of this doctrine because he doesn't say that God predestines us according to the purpose of our will, but according to the purpose of his will. It's the same thing that he says in verse 11. In the same sentence, he says that in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. Or another famous passage on the same doctrine, Romans 9, the Apostle Paul says that it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And this addresses one of the most common arguments against the doctrine of predestination. That when Christians wrestle through these things from the scripture, what you'll hear often is that maybe God and his foreknowledge saw what we would do in advance. That God looks down the corridor of time and he sees who will have faith in me, who will choose me, and then I'll choose that person on the basis of their choice of something within them, their faith, their goodness, whatever it is within themselves. And so that the the decree of predestination depends on the human choice through foreknowledge. But as you think about that, as you you look at this text, I hope you, you see how this actually speaks against that view because that would essentially say that he predestined us according to the purpose of our will. According to the purpose of our decision, he predestined. But it's saying here, no, that it's, it's not according to our will. It's according to his will, his initiative, his choice. And this relates very much to what Paul talks about in chapter 2 of this letter. If you, if you look just over into chapter 2, he says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That the picture of scripture is that we are spiritually dead by nature. And if you ever have been around dead people, they don't make particularly good decisions. Uh, they don't make good choices generally. Um, and that's the picture spiritually that, that left to our spiritual deadness that, that we can't choose, we can't act, we can't do anything. But that what God does is, is, is not look, he doesn't look down the corridor of time and see the dead making good choices, But he looks down the corridor of time and sees the dead on whom he set his love before the foundation of the world and says, I will bring them to spiritual life and I will bring them to myself. And that's a very different view of free will than we often think about. We think of free will as being this arbitrary choice, an arbitrary decision one way or the other. But according to the Bible, free will is the ability to choose what we desire, to follow the desires of our heart, And the point is, according to the Bible, that before God's grace enters our life, our heart is against God fundamentally. Given the choice to do what we want, we'll reject God every time. But then when God changes us, when he brings us from death to life, he gives us a new heart. And we are able finally to freely choose him for the first time because he has worked in us according to the purpose of his will. And so again, he predestined us in love for adoption to himself as sons according to the purpose of his will. That's the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination in these two verses. And As we wrap up today, what I want to do is is to step back from verses four and five and, and think about some practical applications of this doctrine. If you read the older author's Uh, From the 1600s, they would often talk about the use of the doctrine. And so I want to offer you three uses of this doctrine, three practical implications. So here's the first use. The doctrine of predestination should inspire humility in the human heart. It should inspire humility. Humility. That there's a stereotype that people who believe what Paul is teaching in this verse, that that somehow they would get puffed up and say, well, God chose me. Aren't I special? But the whole point here is that, one, we don't know fully who is chosen and who is not chosen. And the second thing is that that God didn't base his choice on anything within us that is rooted in Christ. It's rooted in God's love. It's not rooted in us. And so, we can't boast in anything. You say, well, I chose God and you didn't. You saying that's not of yourself. It is a gift of God. I'm growing in sanctification because I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. And you say, no, that is not of yourself. It's a gift of God. So we said that I'm his workmanship created in Christ for good works that God prepared beforehand. That we should walk in them. Or as Paul says says elsewhere, what do you have that you have not received? And if you have received it, why do you boast as if you have not received it? So that's the first use that this should inspire humility in the human heart. But I think it should also inspire boldness, confidence in the human heart. So it's humility, but also confidence. I think it's in confidence that we have when we are able to share the hope that we have with those around us because we are told in Scripture to be witnesses, to proclaim Christ, that God may use our feeble words of proclaiming the good news to bring someone from spiritual death to spiritual life. But it's so liberating to know that I can't change a human heart that somebody's salvation is not up to me, that I can pray for the salvation of my friends and family knowing that that ultimately their destiny is between them and God. And so I become then a a witness. And you think of a witness in a courtroom. The witness in the courtroom is not there to persuade someone to a particular point of view. The witness in the courtroom is there to tell the truth. What have I seen and heard? What have I experienced? And that's the same for us, When we say, the Lord has loved me, the Lord has changed me, the Lord has brought me to himself. And I want to tell you about that love because it is the best news in the world. And and then all of the results belong to the Lord. But also I think there's not only confidence in our witness to those around us, but this also leads to confidence in our eternal destiny. Because if we're the ones who started this whole thing, then we can somehow get ourselves off the rails. You can somehow derail your own salvation because it's according to your will. But if it's true what the Bible says that it's God's will from start to finish, it's his purposes, then God always finishes what he starts. And so we can have confidence that no matter what we we face in trials and tribulations, that God is going to bring us through those. And that's the confidence that Paul can have towards the Philippian Christians in, in, first, uh, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion because it's his work ultimately, not ours. So that's the, the second practical use of this doctrine. It's confidence, it's boldness. But then here's the the third and final use, and this is where I'll leave you today, that this doctrine should inspire worship in the human heart, that it should inspire praise within the human heart. And that's where Paul leaves us in verse 6. At the end of this section, he says that all of this, this, this choice of God, this predestination of God, is all to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That when you recognize that you can't contribute anything for your salvation, that you're not saving yourself, that salvation is of the Lord, that your only response is is worship, to, to fall down before the Lord in praise. And I think that's why Paul starts this book and starts this sentence with this very difficult concept because he wants to lead us into this place of humble, reverent, confident worship and praise of the gracious God who loved us and gave himself for us. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that you have loved us for the foundation of the world, that you chose us in Christ, that you predestined us for adoption to yourselves as sons through Jesus Christ. And so today we pray that we can all hold on to Jesus as the center of everything, that all the blessings of our life are found in Christ alone, through Christ alone. And I pray that we can be people who who love Jesus and hold tight to his love for us as the foundation. And Lord, I pray that this doctrine, this understanding of your sovereignty and salvation would not lead us to pride, that we would be humbled in the sight of your power and sovereignty and love and majesty. Lord, we pray that this doctrine would not inspire any kind of complacency where we think that we can live however we want. But Lord, we, we pray that we can make our, our calling and our election sure, that we can show the, the fruit of the grace of God within us, that the, the evidence of your eternal purpose brought to bear in our lives would be evident in our, in our growth and love, our love for God, our love for neighbor, That would flow from us. And that we would see it not as something that's of ourselves or from ourselves, but fully a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so we look to all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.